welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Man, I'm excited today. I'm pumped up. I don't know if you guys are or not. You look a little sleepy, but I'm ready to go. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 10, if you'd like to turn there. Matthew chapter 10. Do you remember when you were a younger kid? Some of you are still young kids, and some of you are young kids at heart. But do you remember when you were a younger kid, and and kids can organize games out of nothing? You put a bunch of kids together in one place, they're going to come up with a game to play. You remember when it was time to play like baseball or basketball or dodgeball, how they would pick the teams? You'd have two people who were usually the best two, and they'd be the team captains, and everybody would line up on a line, and they'd start picking their teams of who they wanted. And, And there was always a pecking order to how they picked their teams. You guys remember that? Like, it's going to be the ones who are the most athletic first, and, and then the ones who are going to be the fastest will be next after that, and, and after that it's the smart ones or the popular ones, and then, and then everybody else. The whole point of this is we got to figure out who's going to help us win this game. I've got to pick the good people to be on my team to help me get through this team, and we're going to win this kickball tournament or whatever. Uh, you know, as I, as I look at this and I remember back to that, it seems like there were a couple of distinct groups of people. That first half of the group that was picked, they appeared to be the A-team, like the smart ones, the, the really athletic ones, the really popular ones. That was the A-team that got picked. How many of you guys, be honest, it's okay, you don't have to be humble. How many of you guys were the A-team when it came to sports at school? A couple of us. Good, good. It's good to see that there's a few of us here. And I, I just want you to know that I love you, but I don't like you very much, right? And, and let me just throw this out here. I'm not going to point any fingers, say any names. But if you're 14 and you already have the body of an NBA player, you are not on the A-team. You are the A-team, some people over there. So you should have raised your hand in that. And I knew you wouldn't. That's why I called you out. And, and where were my B-team people at? Where are those guys at? That, that's, that's my people. I love y'all. We are in this together. Uh, I was always on the B team growing up and especially uh, when it came to basketball I wasn't very coordinated or fast or tall or anything I wasn't very good I'll tell you my entire basketball career seventh grade I got in the last couple minutes of a game and I I hit a three-point shot from my sweet pot my sweet spot three-point shot nothing but net and then the next year eighth grade I cut a pass I stole that ball went down left-handed layup and and that's those five points are all I ever scored in basketball growing up now I know what you're thinking Brian with with that kind of ability why aren't you playing in the NBA why are you our pastor and all, all I can say is God takes us down some weird paths and if you'd like my autograph afterward you can have that oh I didn't tell you my ninth grade record ninth grade I played less than two minutes the entire year and the senior high coach come up to me after a game and said Brian I think you'd make a really good manager so that's that's how uh, my stuff worked out but there's the A team there's the B team and and I always remembered that for the B team they had something called B games I don't know if they still do this where they have the B team games and like that was my moment to shine it's all those kids who don't get to play very much and the coaches are like let's let them run some energy out get out there and play the other team and so B team would come around, B games would come around, I'd be so excited, I'm going to get out there, I'm going to show coach what I can do, he'll be starting me next month, and and they'd start the B team, and I still didn't get to play, (laughs) I was that bad at basketball back in the day, but you know, these A teams and B teams, I hate to tell you kids, if if you're growing up and you're like, one day I'm going to be on the A team, it still happens that way in the, in the professional world as well. There's, there's A teams and there's B teams. In any organization you're at, there's going to be the go-getters, the people who are really good at things that are getting promotions, and, and then there's the rest of us, right? It, it goes that way forever. But as Jesus comes into this world, God himself comes into this world, he, he chooses his team. 
And as I look at the story of Jesus, I have these expectations. Like, Jesus is going after the A-team. He's going after the athletic and the smart and the popular and those people who are going to do great things. But then you read the Bible and you're like, Jesus Jesus didn't go after the A-team. The quality of the people that he picked doesn't seem to match him or his calling or his ministry. Uh, Last week, we started a message series called Oxymoronic Faith, and it's based on the principle of an oxymoron. If you don't know what that is, that's that's two words that are used together that shouldn't go together. And ever since I preached this, people have been texting me, telling me their favorite oxymorons. I heard one last week, jumbo shrimp. Somebody come up there. And if any of you guys are history nerds, this is my favorite one that I've heard in a long time, French resistance. And if you don't get that joke, you need to go check out some World War II history. Favorite oxymoron right there ever, I was told last night. But what we're looking at is this is in this series of oxymoronic faith is us and God, we don't seem to match. We don't seem to go together and we shouldn't go together. We are sinners and he is holy. His reactions do not match our actions. As we mess up, he runs to us with grace and forgiveness. He is worthy and we are unworthy. And it seems to me as Jesus picks his team, he chooses the most unworthy of them all. It doesn't make sense to me that as as Jesus comes in and he gets an opportunity to pick his team, that that he goes and he picks a bunch of nobodies. If you've got your Bibles, let's just read a few verses here. This is going to give us the list of his disciples, and it's going to tell us for what purpose he called them. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, it says, And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So so here's Jesus' team that he's picked here. And Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And and he's going to give them a mission here. And you think, if Jesus is giving you a mission, this is probably some pretty important work. And my expectation is, Jesus, go get the A-team. But if you read through the Bible, if you look at this, Jesus didn't go after the scholars. Jesus didn't go after the most respectable. Jesus didn't go for the A team. Jesus did not go for the B team. Jesus didn't even go for the C or the D teams. Jesus went to the most unworthy and the most unlovable. It's like this. When all those kids are lined up to play baseball, Jesus walks through the line of those kids being lined up to pick, and he goes out to that kid playing in the field who's just holding a dandelion. When Jesus decides to pick someone, that's who he goes and picks. He doesn't even pick the the elite or the second to elite or the third to elite. He picks the ones that I would have picked last. Now, in this scripture here, Jesus defines the job, or I'm sorry, the job that the disciples are called to to by Jesus is defined. Well, first in verse 1, he calls them disciples. And and disciples is just a fancy word for student. If you're here today and you're a follower of Christ, you are a disciple of Christ. Now, when we think of being a student, we think of going to school and having a teacher, and I'm that teacher student. That's, that's what the disciples did, is they, they followed Jesus and they learned for him. But the word disciple has a little bit more of a heavy calling than what you and I are probably used to when we think of a student and a teacher. These men followed Jesus radically. They sacrificed everything to follow Jesus, and from the moment they become a disciple, their life is all about where Jesus goes, what Jesus says, and what Jesus calls them to do. Now, listen to me carefully. If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a disciple, 
That's what you're being called to. You're not called to Sunday morning church. You're not called to teach a class. You're called to radical commitment to Jesus in every aspect of your life. That's what we call ourselves when we call ourselves disciples. But what I find interesting about this is not that the Bible calls them disciples in this. That's pretty, uh, pretty simple, and it happens most of the time in the Bible that they're referred to as the 12 disciples, is that in two verses, they have two different titles. In, in verse 1, the Bible calls these 12 men disciples, and in verse 2, he immediately calls them apostles, two different, two different titles for this group of men who Jesus has called to himself. I just find that really interesting. If a disciple is a student or a follower, an apostle is one who is sent out. So what we see in this scripture and what we see when we start talking about the 12 is, is that these guys have a two-fold job. Their first job is to follow and to learn. But that following and learning is followed by a mission. So, so listen to me very carefully. Although we don't call ourselves apostles, if you are a disciple, that calling to be a disciple comes with a calling to a personal mission. It calls, comes with a calling to following Christ and working for him in some way. Now, you and I don't have the same calling that the 12 disciples do or the exact same power. And I can tell you exactly why, because in the next little bit here, it says that he gives them some power and it gives them two specific things that these disciples are going to be able to do as they go out, as they are being sent out by Jesus. Number one is the power over unclean spirits. We, we would call that today exorcism. Let's just pause for a second. This, this isn't the point of the message, but we should probably go ahead and just address this while we're here. In the Bible, the Bible makes it very clear that there are spirits working around in the world. There, there are clean spirits, there are angels, there's the Holy Spirit, but there, there are also unclean spirits. The Bible makes it very clear that demonic activity in our world is not just something that happens every once in a while. It's very prevalent. And you and I today, we, we are conditioned to view demonic activity like it's that movie, The Exorcism. Like people's heads are going to spin around and they're going to puke and all, all that kind of stuff. That's, that's not what the Bible talks about. But I have this feeling that in our society that we would all say, well, I don't know anybody who has dealt with demonic oppression or demonic uh, uh, being possession. I don't know about that. I think it's more prevalent in our society than we would think. But it's important that in this time, Jesus saw two needs. He saw the needs for power over unclean spirits, and then he gave them the power of healing. So as these disciples walk into a city, they find, they find the lowest of the low. They find the crippled who have been unable to walk, and they find the blind, and they find those whose lives have been taken over by some kind of demonic activity, and they go to these people who would have been outcasts in their society, and Jesus tells the disciples and the apostles, you've got the power over that. I give you the authority over these things. These men had a mission, and this was the mission, is as they went in and they performed these big feats, the question would then be, is like, hey, where, where'd you learn to do that? That's not natural to tell a man who can't walk to stand up and walk. It's not natural to restore sight to a blind man. Where did you get that power? And the disciples go, Jesus. And then they get to tell the story of the Messiah has come. He's come here to pay for your sins. He's come here to make a way for you to know God. He's come here because he loves you. That, that was the purpose of the mission of the disciples. And if you think about what a big mission that is, is that these are the 12 who are going to carry this message to the world, not just during Jesus' earthly ministry, but after Jesus dies. These are the men responsible for that. You look at this group and go, Jesus, could you have picked a worse group of kids, a worse group of, of young men to carry that responsibility? 
That brings us to our first take-home truth is, is God chooses and empowers people who are unworthy. And that makes sense. If you've spent a lot of time in church, you've probably heard that, that we're all unworthy. So if God's gonna choose anybody, he must choose somebody who's unworthy. But it, it seems that in these 12 men, not only are these 12 men not qualified, these men are uniquely unqualified. They're not the A-team. And this is what I love about this. This is what I love about studying the disciples is that these men are hand-picked by Jesus Christ. This didn't work where Jesus put out announcements like, hey, everybody who's interested in our apostle ministry, we're gonna have a 10-minute meeting after church. Um, It has to do with being around a lot of demons and a lot of sick people. If you're interested in that, meet me up here in a few minutes. And then that's just who showed up. That's, that's not how Jesus picked them. He, he went out into the world and he sought them. He went to where they were and he gave them this invitation. He said, follow me. Follow me. And that was the only criteria. Jesus didn't say, hey, follow me and pay me some money. Jesus didn't say, jump through some hoops and follow me. He said, follow me. Give, give your life to me. Become my disciple. Become my student. That's the only criteria that they had. He, he didn't ask for a resume. He didn't take them through an inter, interview process or compare them to each other. He simply come to them and he said, here's the invitation. Make a decision. Yes or no. Will you follow me? If there is a criteria in this, the criteria is, is simply timing. If you look at the callings of the disciples, that they immediately follow Jesus. They don't, they don't spend a lot of time. And this, this uh, calling of follow me has a connotation of being immediate. So say yes, but immediately. I know we get a lot of sports fans out here. The NFL draft is coming up pretty soon. And the NFL draft always kind of like... Uh, intrigues me because it's these kids who are now a decade younger than me and they're going to go make millions of dollars and everybody's going to know their name and I'm like what did I do with my life (laughs) like here we are in Batesville Arkansas but I love the way that this works is they take all of those college kids who have spent their life pursuing the goal of playing in the NFL pursuing the goal of playing football professionally and getting paid for it and they basically put them on a line and they start to choose in an order and I love the NFL draft because it has so much drama to it. Like they always come on there and like, the Buffalo Bills are on the clock, right? And, and then that echoed a little louder in a minute for it too. And then the timer starts counting down from 10 minutes. You've got 10 minutes to figure out who you need on your team and who the best player it's going to be is. And, and they come down to this one person like it's... It's Brian. We've got to pick Brian. He's the one. And then this is what I always find hilarious about this. They call the kid and ask him if he wants to come work. Like, is that a necessary call? Like, how does that call go? Like, hey, um, yeah, we were looking at your game tape and you're doing pretty good. Would you like to get paid $7 million a year to come catch a ball? Would you like to do that? Like, that's not a necessary call to give out to people. And in that time, there is no discussion about the calling. There is no discussion about if you're going to accept that invitation. No, no, no kid sits there and goes, oh, the Bills, I don't really look good in blue. Are the Buffalo Bills blue? Y'all help me out. Yeah, okay, good. I thought so. Okay. I, I, I don't look good in blue. Uh, I was really hoping for a team that wore red. I was hoping for Kansas City. Uh, blue's not my color. Uh, Buffalo, it's, it's cold up there. I don't do cold. Really wanted to go to Tampa, you know, somewhere down there. Like, I want to be warm. Can I get back to you in like a week and tell you how I feel about that? 
No, in that minute, the timer is counting down and those players have to say yes and they get on a plane the next morning. The answer is immediate. And if you think about the calling of being a football player and not to diminish their life's career or what they do, but if you think about that and you compare it with the calling of being a follower of Christ, compare that with the calling of follow me, which one's more important? Which, which one means more? When Jesus handpicks someone, he says, follow me, and the answer must come immediately. Say yes and get on the plane tomorrow. Our next take-home truth is this, is that God's calling deserves an immediate response. I love the story of Matthew. I love the story of Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector, and he's sitting in his booth, and he's doing this, this job that everybody would hate. He's taking taxes for the Roman, and he's taking a little bit extra and sticking it in his pocket, and he is hated by everybody. And the discussion between Jesus and Matthew is two words. The Bible says Jesus walked by Matthew's place, he just turns around and he says, follow me. He didn't say, hey, Matthew, would you like a better life? Hey, Matthew, you look rich right there, but I can make you richer. He just, he turns to Matthew and says, follow me. And immediately, immediately Matthew steps out and he leaves his life behind to follow Christ. We see that with, with many of the other disciples. They, they answer immediately, but who are we kidding? They're still a rough group of people. Out of the 12 disciples, we have some background information on roughly half of them, about six of them is what it tells us more than just their names or maybe one or two conversations they were involved in. And this is what we have is, is in these six disciples, four of them are fishermen. <laughs> it's a real transferable skill there, Jesus. R running after fishermen, what are they going to do when people get mad, throw their nets on them? Like, like that's, not, that's not who I would have called. That's not the A-team. One of them is Matthew, the tax collector. He's been known to rob people. He's hated by all of Israel. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure people really want to hear him talk about what he's found or who he knows. And, and another one that I find interesting, the Bible doesn't tell us much about him, but his name is Simon, and then it's always followed by the zealot. Simon the zealot. Now, it could mean a couple of different things, but what it probably means is that, that he was part of a denominational group called the Zealots at this time, and, and their whole goal in the denomination was to overthrow Roman, in, uh, Roman rule in Israel and, and to basically have a civil war. Some of these guys were so serious about this that they became known as the Dagger Men because they would assassinate people who opposed their purposes. It's like those fringe militia groups we have in America today that think they're going to overtake the, the government with two or three guns. Like those kind of people. That, that's who Simon was. And, and Jesus handpicks and he calls him to come be a follower and to come be a disciple. So with all the scripture, here's the list of qualifications we have for the disciples before they are called into Jesus' ministry. We've got a couple of guys who are good with boats. We've got one guy who's good at robbing people for the sake of collecting taxes for Rome. We've got another guy who wants to kill the guy who's collecting taxes for Rome. A bunch of people we know nothing about and one truth is they all immediately said yes to the calling. Think about that for just a second. That the only thing redeemable about these men, the only thing that made them useful for Christ, the only good thing I can say about them before they knew Jesus is they immediately responded with yes. And it's important to focus on the fact that Jesus apparently purposely picked the worst of the worst, that he skipped over the A-team. But it's also important to look at the fact that he didn't pick some other people. 
At this time, there were a couple denominations of Jews, or, or a couple followings of Jews, however you want to call it, called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you want to talk about the A-team. These guys were the A-team. Their life was dedicated to living pure. These guys almost never sinned. They followed every rule to the T. They memorized the entire Old Testament. They could quote it from memory. They, they devoted their whole life to studying and praying and working for God. And if I'm looking at this story and I'm looking at these Bible scholars and I know that they're available to Jesus because Jesus has discussions with them, I'm going, why didn't you pick those guys? The, those guys are the A-team. Why wouldn't you pick the people who are, who are set up for this kind of work, who want to live a religious lifestyle, who are already able to learn, who know everything about the Bible? Well, Jesus, why wouldn't you pick them? Why the fishermen and the tax collectors? Last week, last week we read a story that Jesus told called the story of the prodigal son. And you may remember the story of the prodigal son, this, this younger of two sons, he goes out and he goes to his dad and he says, dad, um, it's good that you're alive and all, but I really wish I had your money. So if you could either give it to me or go ahead and die so I can inherit it, that'd be great. And then he went off to a far land and, and he went off and he wasted his money. We don't have time to go into all the details again, but he wasted his money with horrible living. And, and when things got back, he, bad, he made this decision. I, I messed up. I'm going to go home and I'm going to ask dad for a job. He, he won't let me be a family member anymore, but I'm going to ask dad for a job because I'm starving to death and I'm tired of the life that I'm living. And as he comes home, the father sees him. And the father could have been mad. The father could have been embarrassed, but, but he runs out to the son and he wraps his hand around him and he restores him as a family member immediately. And we talk about that story because it tells us about God's love for us. It tells us as how his reaction does not match the actions that we live. But did you know that there's a third character in the story that almost never gets talked about? It's the other son, the, the older son, if you want to turn there, let's read Luke 15 for just a second. It tells the story of the older brother starting at verse 25. This is after the son had came home. They're having a party because the son was lost and now he was found. And now, now we see the second son, the older brother. Now his elder son was in the field and he came and he drew nigh to the house and heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother has come, and thy father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. This is important. Notice this next part. Notice the movement of the people in the story. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said to him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should meet, make, I'm sorry, it was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Like this part of the story we don't tend to talk about a little bit. The older brother, you got to think about who the older brother was and how he would have lived. The older brother would have been there and he would have saw his younger rebellious brother come up to his father and be disrespectful. 
He would have saw his dad sell his life's work so he could give the younger brother enough money to go out, and then he would have known that the younger brother just went out and wasted it, that he gave all that money away. And the whole time, the older brother is the good brother. And people walk up to him on the street and say, I'm so glad you're not like your younger brother. What happened to him? Why didn't he turn out like you? You stuck by your father's side and you've lived right. You've done the good things. You don't mess up like your younger brother. You're the good one. You've got a future. You're wise and you're smart. And you have to think of how good that would have felt. And one day he's out in the field and as he comes home, he hears a party. And the Bible doesn't say this, but this is just how I think. Like, if I'm the older brother and I'm coming home and there's a party and people compliment me all the time, you know what I'm thinking? It's for me. (laughs) They're going to celebrate what I did They're going to celebrate the fact that that I've done all the good things. Dad's going to celebrate the fact that I stayed with him, that I always listened to him, that I was always respectful. They're having a party for me. And I pull a servant aside and very quick, tell me what's going on. It's for me, isn't it? You guys celebrating me? What are we doing? What's going on? And and the servant goes, oh, your your brother has come back. Yeah, the the one that wasted the money and did all the bad things. and, And your dad's having a party because he's back. I can identify with the older brother here. Why are you having a party for him? I, I lived the good life. He lived the bad life. That's not, that's not something you celebrate. You don't celebrate at him. You celebrate me. And it says that the, the brother got mad. I get that. Ever been mad? Ever been married? Been mad. Okay. You, you ever been mad? And he gets mad and he refuses to go in and he throws this little hissy fit. And I love this, is that the father leaves the party and he comes out and he sits down beside him and says, tell me, What's wrong? Why, why, why won't you come in? And the son lists off all these things. Dad, I did this and I did this and I did this right and I did this and I never did that and I wasn't there and I didn't go to those places. I didn't go to that party. I didn't hang out with those kinds of people. I never said bad things about you. I followed all the Ten Commandments. I didn't sin. I'm not like those other people. I'm better. And you're going to have a party for him? You're going you're to love him more than you love me? I lived right. And in this, Jesus is showing the Pharisees a picture of themselves. Jesus, in a discussion with the Pharisees, says, this is what you look like. The Father is celebrating because somebody who lived wrong got their mind and their heart right, and it's something to be excited about it, and you're, you're mad about it because of the mistakes that they made in the past. You ever hear something like that in church? <laughs> well, yeah, they come to church now, but should have seen them in high school. You know what they did last Saturday night? I wouldn't come to church if I had acted like they acted. The truth is, is that that Jesus didn't pick the Pharisees. He didn't pick the Sadducees because they were set on following rules, but they didn't have the heart of God. We call that legalism. I, I love this quote. It says, legalism lacks the supreme sense of worship. It obeys, but does not adore. And isn't that the heart of the older son? is he obeyed the rules. He followed the rules. He did the right things. But he didn't love his dad. If he had loved his dad, he would have joined the party. He would have been so happy. Uh, Brother, I'm glad you're back. You made dad so happy. But he didn't do that. See, the heart of the older son is not the heart of the fathers. And the, the heart of the Pharisees is not the heart of Jesus. And it turns out that's the disqualification for being on Jesus' A team. It's not having your heart where God's heart is. 
Our next take home truth is, is this, is that Jesus has preference for willing hearts over a religious mind. Jesus has preference for willing hearts over a religious mind. If you're like me and you've been a Christian for a long time and you've been in church for a long time, you might want to focus on this for just a second. God's preference is what's in here, not what you're doing with these. And we can forget that and we can become focused on our actions instead of God's heart. See, Jesus made it clear in his ministry. He said, I'm here to call the unworthy. The the perfect don't need a savior. I'm here to call the sick. The well don't need a doctor. I want to be clear. As as Jesus says this to the Pharisees, the Pharisees aren't cut off. Jesus is not done with legalistic people. He, He offers them an invitation. You look in the story. I love the way that Jesus puts himself in the story as the father. The father comes to the older son. Jesus comes to the, to the Pharisees and he offers them an opportunity. Join the party. Celebrate with me. Lo- love your brother. Be so glad that he came back. But, but their hearts wouldn't take it. Their hearts would not be called to repentance for pride. And so the invitation went to the unworthy, to the fishermen and the tax collectors and to the zealots because their hearts could be called to repentance. But still, even with all that, I look at this group of guys, these 12 guys, and go, can God really use these people? This ragtag group of guys that, that have no schooling, they have, they have nothing. These guys have scars in their lives, they, they have sin in their lives, they have brokenness. They've got to be unusable. And somewhere in this, day, in this room today, somebody's sitting here and they're thinking, that Brown, that's me. I've got brokenness and scars and... And you've listened to a lie in the back of your head that says, I'm unusable because of what I've done. You come in this place and you're excited to be here, but somewhere in the back of your mind, you're like, if people really knew what I used to do, if people knew about my secret sin, they wouldn't love me. If people knew about that addiction that I just can't shake, if people knew that I'm unusable, or if people knew, they would know that I'm unusable. But that's, that's the point of the story, is, is that's what God does, is he takes the unusable and he makes them usable. He takes broken pots and he makes them whole again. I love this story. I've got a, a picture coming up here. Long story. This is, this is Mr. Dave Reaver right here. Some of you guys may have heard his story. Awesome story. In his, in his late teens and early 20s, he really felt called by God. He loved the Lord. He felt called to be an evangelist, to serve God. And he was kind of working that way and, and going to be an evangelist. And, and he was going to serve God in that way. And that was going to be his life, was being a follower, a disciple, and an evangelist for God. But it was right in the middle of the Vietnam War. And he received his draft notice for the Army, and he decided, I don't want to be in the Army. So he quickly went and found a Navy recruiter. He said, hey, put me somewhere where I won't get shot at. That's what I want to do, in the Navy. And so they, they did not do what he asked. He ended up joining the Naval Special Forces on the, uh, the PBRs, the boats that drove around the, Me- uh, the Mekong Delta. And is actually special forces. He worked in tandem with Navy SEALs. He had all of this special forces training and he had one of the most dangerous jobs in the Navy, if not the entire military during this. And one day he was patrolling on his boat and, and they got into a firefight and they were getting some fire from the side of the uh, from the side of the bank and they couldn't really see where the fire was coming from. It was really thick brush, and so they had a tool just for this. It's called a, a white phosphorus grenade. It was basically just a fire explosion. He pulled the pin. And as he pulled it back by his head, the grenade explodes in his hand. Now, let's just 
take a second to, to talk about the store here. They later did some forensics on it and figured out, they said that at that time that a sniper had been drawing down on his head and he pulled that grenade back in the way just, just quick enough and, and the sniper shot that grenade. Hold on to that for just a second because I want to ask you, what, what are the chances of a sniper hitting a little grenade like this in somebody's hand while it's in motion? The grenade exploded all over him, and, and white phosphorus is nothing to mess with. It, it burns at about 5,000 degrees. He'll tell you, if you read his book, he'll tell you that he looked down and he saw his face laying on his boots. It had melted off. He quickly jumped out of the boat and jumped in the water, but that didn't help. White phosphorus burns so hot that it burns underwater. And he pulled himself up on the shore, and they tried to medevac him, and they put him on a stretcher, and he was so hot and burning so much that he burnt through the stretcher, and they dropped him on the ground. When he finally got to somewhere where somebody could help him and he could get some medical attention, he, he vaguely recalls hearing two doctors argue about if he was even worth trying to save or not. He, he was so badly burned. Because he was so far gone, they prematurely listed him as killed in action. His family was notified of that. And, and he, but, I'm sorry, but he lived. Three days later, they undid some of his bandages and he was still smoking, still burning after three days of this white phosphorus grenade you have to imagine what it was like to be him he was horribly disfigured parts of his face were gone his nose disappeared ears gone no hair two-thirds of his body covered in burns and he thought all is lost they put him in a burn unit where he was with other people who had, had similar in, uh, similar similar injuries and, and he watched as these people went through these treatments for days or weeks and eventually died because of their wounds. He watched as these men who, who no longer looked like what they had when they joined the army, as, as their young pretty wives would come in to see them, as they would gasp in horror, cry, take off their wedding rings and leave it by these men and leave. And, and in the midst of all this, he said, I'm not going to live through this. Everything is lost. My ministry is gone. My wife's going to be just like those other women. She's going to come in and lay her wedding ring down and walk out of my life because nobody would love me this way. I'm ugly. I'm disfigured. And, and in that moment and in that darkness and with all that brokenness and scars, he made a decision. I don't want to live in this world like this. He was hooked up to all of these tubes that were keeping him alive. And so when nobody was looking, he reached down and he pulled the tubes out of his arm. A little time went by, and only about two hours later, he started to get really hungry. He pulled his feeding tube out. He grabbed the wrong one. He said, you can die that way, but that's not how I was planning on going out. And, and he made a decision at that moment, okay, maybe I can make it. <clears throat> he was positive that his life would revolve around the moment that his wife walked in the room. And he prepared her, himself for her horror and he prepared himself to be left when she saw what was left of him. And his wife came in. They, they would have taken her and they would have, they would have prepped her and said, look, chances don't look good that he's going to make it. We're trying, but sometimes they die. It's 50-50 shot. And he doesn't look like he used to. Don't, don't be shocked. And they took her and they walked her around the room. And he knew that she was in the room. And they walked her by other burn victims so she could kind of get a picture of what she'd be coming to and take the shock off of her, off of her when she looked at her husband. And as she walked up to his bed, listen guys, this is a testament to being a Christian. As she walked up to his bed, she wasn't like the other wives. She didn't take off her wedding ring and walked away. She grabbed his hand and she knelt down and kissed him. And she said to him, 
you were never very good looking in the first place. <laughs> Way to kick a man while he's down, right? But he made it. But he, he had this uphill battle after getting out of here. His wife took him home, took care of him. Had this uphill battle of trying to fit in into the world that he was in now. He had to adjust to people looking at him. He had to adjust to a life without being who he used to be. One of my favorite stories is he'll tell you his ear just falls off randomly. People look at him weird and he'll start checking to see if his ear's on his head because it'll be laying on his shoulder. He said the worst part was the kids. To kids he looked like a monster. And he's always reminded how hideous he was when he walked into a place that had kids and they began to scream and run away. And he thought, my calling must be gone. Nobody wants somebody that looks like that up in front of the church. Nobody wants to try to listen to somebody like that talk about Jesus. My calling must be gone. But, but he was invited by a friend of his to come preach on Sunday night. And he argued, he said, look, you don't want this in your church. This is not what people want to come here. He said, come preach. Just, just come do it. God called you to it. Come do it. And as he walked from the back of the church that night to the front of the church, he heard the gasp. And he heard the kids begin to cry. And he got up there and the women were covering their face, looking at his scars. But he pushed through the embarrassment and the brokenness and the pain and he shared his story and he shared how the hope that he had was in the fact that Jesus Christ loved him, died for him, was buried and raised again. And by the end of his message, as they gave invitation, tear-filled people began to come to the front of the church and give their lives to Christ. See, Dave Reaver looked at himself in a mirror and he said, my scars make me useless. But God looked at him and said, those scars are exactly what I'm going to use in you. Let me ask you again, what is the chances that a sniper hits a moving grenade as somebody throws it? What's the chances that the person holding that grenade lives? What's the, person that that, or what's the chances that that person was a follower of Christ called to ministry? I don't think it was a coincidence that God allowed him to go through this. See, Dave Reaver started a ministry to veterans. There were people coming back. They were physically and mentally broken, and they needed someone with scars like them to share the gospel of Christ with them. So God sent Dave. And the sinners of Israel, they needed people who were sinners like them to come and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. So Jesus sent the 12. And the lost in Batesville, they need people with brokenness just like them. So God's in us. <clears throat> so as we look at this, understand that whatever scars you carry, mistakes, hurt, if you feel inadequate, if something's happened to you, listen, Jesus has you on his A-team and you have a mission. So when we look at Jesus' calling to these men and he calls, says, follow me, it comes with a purpose because it comes with a mission. And usually when it comes with a mission, it comes with a price. Jesus used the follow me words. He used them in two separate contexts. The first context was the initial, come to me, follow me, become a believer in me. And if you're in here today and you have not accepted that calling, now is the time. It's just like the NFL draft. Some of you think that your clock is gonna tick for another five, 10, 15, 30, 50 years. But the truth of it is we don't know how long our clocks have left on them. It could be 50 years and it could be an hour before our time runs out and it'll be too late to accept that calling. So if you have not accepted that calling to follow Christ, today is the moment to lay your life down. Today is the moment to give it to him. But in the second context that Jesus uses, follow me, he defines his calling. Jesus says, take up 
your cross and follow me. See, salvation is free. Let me be very clear. Salvation is free. It's paid for by Jesus Christ's blood. You can't earn your salvation. You can't go get it yourself. It's not something that you can be worthy of. Jesus Christ gives it to you. It is completely free, but it will, it will cost you an awful lot to follow Christ. I was thinking this morning, it's kind of like, like getting a puppy at Christmas. Somebody brings you a dog to your house and they say, this is free, it's yours, you can have it. And you're like, yes, I love it, I've got a companion. But puppies cause a lot of trouble. And listen, if you accept Christ in your life, I can't stand up here and lie to you. If you truly accept Christ, it's gonna cause some problems in your life because you're gonna have to die to yourself and you're gonna have to follow him in every way. And this was the problem with that second son is he had a selective ability to follow God. Not, not to every calling God has. So our last take home truth is this, is that follow me is an immediate calling and a complete calling. I'm hung up on children's games this morning. You guys remember playing follow the leader when you were in first grade? Somebody would be like, I'm the leader, everybody follow me. And, and this line of kids would line up behind this guy and they would just follow this kid wherever he went. They'd go up the stairs and down the slide and through the swing and they'd rock across the log. And whatever he did, they had to do. Listen, Jesus Christ, when he says, follow me, it is the most radical, intense game of follow the leader there is. He says, follow me wherever I go and whatever I do. And let, let me remind you that Jesus' life ended up on a cross. And of these, these 12 people that we've been talking about, at least two of them followed him to a cross. In fact, only one of them was not killed following Jesus. Only one of them did not give their life for the gospel. And so when Christ says, follow me, he calls us with this radical hope that we will follow him anywhere, anyway. And this is where some of us get lost is this. We'll follow Jesus up the stairs and we'll follow him down the slide through the swing and across the log. But when he gets close to that cross, we said, no, I'm, I'm not going there. I won't die to myself. I won't serve others the way that you served others. I won't love others the way that you loved others. No, God, I'm okay with, with the actions, but I won't have the heart. But all of those men who died following Jesus, it tells me one thing. They watched Jesus die, and they knew what it meant to carry their cross. And then they watched each other die and they knew what it meant to follow Christ, but they kept following. Why did they keep following? Because it's worth it. And if they were here today, they would tell you that it's worth it. Liv, come on up. This isn't the best invitation to give to a group of people. I didn't talk to you about how great heaven would be. I didn't talk to you about all the things you get when you follow Christ, but this is the truth of our calling to Christ, is that he calls us to give everything, to be willing to give him our lives and everything in it. But I can tell you this, it's worth it. Because not only, not only did his followers follow him to death, they followed him to eternal life as well. And if they were here today, they'd tell you, do the same thing. It's worth it. Trust me, in the long run, when you see what we've seen, it's worth it. And so this morning, I just want to ask you to, to look into your heart, and I want to ask you how you've accepted that calling to follow me. Have you ran away? Are you the person who says, I'll answer, but not immediately? Give me a week to think about it. Cross doesn't look good on me, Jesus. I don't think that's what I want. Are you the person who accepted that first following, said, I'll follow you, but only when you go where I want to go?